to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, shake the dust of your feet when you leave their town as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed, because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowds away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging, because we are in a remote place here. He replied, You give them something to eat. They answered, We have only five loaves of bread and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About five thousand men were there. But he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everybody sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, The Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, 
the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendour talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfilment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and, and enveloped them, and they were afraid, and they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves. They told no one at that time what they had seen. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsion so that he foams at the mouth. It, is scarce, it scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. O unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marvelling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so that they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask about it. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is the least among you all, he is the greatest. Master said, John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him uh, because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem and he sent messengers on ahead uh, and who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people th there did not welcome him because he was heading to Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them and they went to another village. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, 
I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, Follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening. Isn't it great to hear a passage of Luke read out like that? It just reminds me, actually, of what we did a couple of weeks ago when we went on our day of contemplation. We read the whole of the Gospel of Luke together. It was just fantastic. It's a really good thing to do. If you haven't done it, do it, because it's just amazing what you pick up as you hear the whole of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, If you've been with us since Christmas time, you'll know that we're working our way through the Gospel of Luke, and we're taking a dip in here and there as we go through. Uh, We're not covering every chapter or every verse, but we're kind of understanding the themes and how it works out uh, as Luke presents Jesus to us. And we've been thinking particularly about the notion of following Jesus. Last week, we thought about the, the idea of the crowds and their responses to Jesus, our response to Jesus. We talked about the things to do with the soils and the way we hear God's word. This week, what we do, what we see is there's a significant shift in the narrative of Luke's gospel. Uh, Up until now, largely the disciples have been people who have been following Jesus, but in many ways they've been described as passive observers. They've kind of been looking on and noticing what Jesus has been doing. What we notice here in this passage is that they become active participants in Jesus' mission. There's a shift. They become active participants in Jesus' mission. So I want to look at three things with you this evening as we look at the whole of chapter 9. First of all, I want to think about the call to be active and then the cost to be active, of being active, and the commitment to being active. So come with me to Luke chapter 9. You might like to have it open in front of you as we continue this evening. Well, let's think about the call to be active. As the chapter begins, Jesus calls the 12 together and he gives them power and authority to drive out demons and to cure diseases. And he sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. And indeed, that's what they do. Uh, See there in verse 6, they went from village to village, proclaiming the good news of Jesus and healing everyone everywhere. Uh, They take Jesus at his word and they go out and they start healing and proclaiming the kingdom of God. A little bit later on, what we notice is this group of people is actually broadened. We didn't read it this evening, but if you look at chapter 10, it's kind of like a bookend to this incident. And here we see that Jesus actually appoints 72 others, uh, 72 other people who go out into every place and every town, and they go out to do the same thing. They go out healing and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Um, We have a sense here, at this point in Luke's narrative, that Jesus is taking things up a notch. The disciples have been passive observers. Now they're being required to be active about their faith. What's also interesting is Jesus becomes very focused. He's already been focused throughout Luke. But right here in chapter 9, verse 51, we read these words. 
As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus sets his mind on what is to come in his death and in his resurrection. And we know from now on that is what's going to happen. Jesus has set his mind towards those things and you can feel the whole book step up. The disciples are called to be active about their faith and Jesus is focused on his mission. So let's just unpack this a little bit before we continue. And can you hear the wind blowing in this? You probably can. Now, at the beginning of chapter 9, we hear that Jesus says he's sending his disciples. The same thing with the 72. This is Jesus' blues brother moment, blues brother's moment. He doesn't hand out sunnies. What he says is, you're on a mission from God. That's what sent means. In, in the Latin, it actually means mission. And it means you're on a mission from God. I'm sending you. Now, you might think, why does he expand it from 12 to 72? That seems like a, an interesting thing. Maybe it's just about the numbers, you know. Do you know your times tables? You know, 12 times 6 equals 72. What does that mean? Uh, it turns out that probably what Jesus is referring to here is something from Genesis chapter, te- uh, Genesis chapter 10, where there's a table of the list of nations, And it was common for people to think about the numbers of 70 and 72, numbers like that, um, as referring to the list of nations, of all the nations of the earth. And I think what Jesus is doing here is saying the mission's going to expand not just from here, where we've been ministering amongst these villages, but it's going to go throughout all the nations. And we certainly see that trajectory developed when we come to Acts chapter 1, where Jesus says to them that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is setting up the notion here that he is going to send people into the world. He's sending his disciples, he's asking them to step up, no longer to be passive but to be active, And then he sends the 72 in the same way. But what does he send them to do? Well, you'll notice some interesting descriptions there. He sends them out to heal people, uh, to relieve people of demons. He sends them out to proclaim the good news of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. And he sends them out into all the villages and all the places around And what strikes me here is that Jesus is referring to both words and deeds. Now, we could spend some time thinking about healing and the way that that works, and I'm not going to do that. You can come and talk to me afterwards. Um, I certainly, just sort of as an aside, uh, think that the more theatrical notions of healing that sometimes you see on TV, I just kind of wonder whether that's what Jesus had in mind. I don't really think he did. But I certainly have seen amazing things happen and people healed in different ways. I think the best way to approach this is to say that Jesus was sending people out on a mission that involved both words and deeds. Words and deeds that pointed to him. Now sometimes people get really confused about this words and deeds thing. Uh, The idea that, you know, do you just do deeds or do you do, say, words or how do you put those two things together... 
And in Christian circles in particular, there's been lots of debate about those sorts of things, about words and deeds and how they work. To be honest with you, I've never quite understood the arguments. Maybe it's just that I'm thick. But I think it's probably because I grew up in a very different context. I'm going to share some personal things tonight. And one of the personal things is that I grew up in Malaysia, in Sarawak. And I can remember day after day after day, my mum, who was a nurse, treating people who were sick outside our home. So people would just line up and they'd come in to talk to her about their problems. Uh, She'd give them medicines, she'd bind their wounds. She would heal them in that sense. But if you said to her, oh, is that all you did? Sent them away with kind of a bandage. She said, of course not. If I care about their physical health, of course I care about their spiritual health. I'm going to share Jesus with them. And if you know my mum, that's just the way she works. You sit next to her on a train, you end up in a conversation about Jesus because she just loves Jesus. That's just the way she is. She couldn't separate the word and deed. There was no point. Now, I appreciate we live in slightly different circumstances. We live in a very secular environment where in the workplace it's hard to speak about Jesus so openly in that way. And yet I want to say to you, I think we're far too timid. Our words and our deeds can point people to Jesus. We're on a mission from God. We can do things and we can say things. That's why I'm actually so delighted that we have things like the bike shed and the community garden and we belong. Um, And each of those things, we need more volunteers, by the way, for each of those things. But one of the things that's so great about them is we've said to people, as we've set up those particular programs, we want you to care for people and love people and support them and do good deeds, but we want you to talk about Jesus and not to be embarrassed about that at all because we're on about Jesus. Why wouldn't you want to know about Jesus? And that's the kind of thing that Jesus is calling his disciples to here. He's saying, live it out in every sphere, in every way, just in word and Indeed, Jesus is really reminding us that Christianity is not a spectator sport. Now, sometimes uh, Christians and particularly churches contribute to this a little bit. We can turn Christianity into kind of a, a spectator sport. So you come along on Sunday night and uh, there's great music, there's preaching and you can end up spectating. I know exactly what that feels like, watching the show. And of course, if you're here tonight and you're exploring uh, Christian things for the first time, great, have a look, check us out, see what it's like. But as a follower of Jesus, you're not called to be a spectator. You're called to be on the field. You're not called to be in the stands. You're called to be on the field playing the game, part of the game. People might look on to see how you play the game, but you're actually called to be on the field. And that's the challenge, because sometimes we then go, okay, well, I'm on the roster, and I do small groups, and I help out with this ministry here. I've ticked all the boxes. I'm participating, but that's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is it's the whole of life thing. I'm sending you out on a mission from God. 
to be my witnesses throughout the world, to point people to Jesus in all that we do. The harvest is plentiful, Jesus will go and say, but the labourers are few. Well, that's the call to be active as Christians. What's the cost involved? How does that actually affect our lives and what we do and and what happens? Well, right at the end of chapter 9, there are three examples that Jesus uses, and I think those are three useful examples to look at because they actually sum up a lot of what Jesus says to his disciples along the way throughout the chapter and into chapter 10 and actually in the rest of Luke. So let's have a look at those three examples and see what Jesus is saying here about the cost of being active. Verse 57, um, these are kind of three examples of Jesus just talking to people. Uh, It's a bit hard to kind of place them and work exactly how they worked out, but you get the drift that Jesus had many conversations with people and these are kind of three good examples of of the kinds of conversations he was having with people around following him. Verse 57, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Uh, by the way, if, um, if someone came to me and said, I want to follow Jesus, I would say, fantastic, how can I sit down and read the Bible with you? How can I introduce you to Jesus? How can I let you know about this wonderful Jesus and what he's done for you? Uh, where, when, when, when can we catch up for coffee? You know, can we book it in right now? you'll notice that Jesus' approach is slightly different and actually quite confronting. It's almost like he does everything to push the person away. Look what he says. He says, Foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is simply just saying, don't value material things. He's made that clear in the way that he's spoken to the disciples. He said, take nothing on your journey as he sent them out. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave the town. Uh, Don't invest your life in the material things of this world. Don't become a slave to them. Hold on to them lightly. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. And I want to suggest that's a particularly difficult thing for us. Just heard the other day that Sydney is the second most expensive city in the world. And it doesn't take long for people, as you speak with them in this local community, or actually any local community in Sydney, for things to turn to the prices of housing and the desire to own a house and to have a house and how you're going to invest in a house and how you're going to get there. Now, of course, we need to provide roofs over our heads and, of course, we need ways to live and, of course, we need material things. But Jesus is saying, hold on to those things lightly. If you're going to follow me, you're going to hold on to those things lightly. And you'll know within your heart whether this is an issue for you Um, in terms of the way you treat your material things. If you're in the midst of owning a property, what would actually happen if that was taken away from you and, and, and Jesus said, I want you to do something different? Would that shatter your world? Would that change everything? Would your identity be gone? Would your sense of security for the future disappear? Sure, it would be hard. We would need to acknowledge that. 
But Jesus is saying, well, actually, if you follow me, don't expect to hold on to material things. Treat them lightly. In verse 59, he says to another man, follow me. Once again, Jesus is extremely harsh. He says, the man replies, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Have you actually thought about that phrase ever? Let the dead bury the dead? I live in a cemetery. Imagine if I woke up one night and found the dead burying the dead. It would be pretty scary. Like, what is Jesus talking about here? Zombies, perhaps? No. I think what Jesus is doing here is talking about the way we hold on to things in our lives. The way we wait for certain things to happen. Uh, For those who were involved in Jewish families, the idea was that you honoured your parents by burying your parents. You waited to do that. It was a way of honouring those around you. And so you you organised your life uh, in order that you could be there for that to take place. Now, of course, Jesus wants us to honour our parents. But I think what he's saying here is the first dead is about people who are spiritually dead. He's saying there will always be people who can bury uh, those who are close to you. Even if they're not spiritually alive, they can still conduct the funeral. They can still have these things take place. Now, I'm not saying that this is a very easy thing to hear. But I think the point of what Jesus is saying is there's some urgency here. Stop waiting for life events to take place to be on a mission from God. He's inviting you to be on a mission from God now. He's inviting his disciples to be on a mission from God now. I mean, it's interesting, um, Jesus says in in Luke chapter 10, do not take a purse or a bag or sandals, do not greet anyone on the road. Uh, there, There is a sense of, that's a bit strange, but oh, I see, You've got to get on with the job. There's an urgency about this. Don't let life events stop you from getting on with being on a mission from God. You have been sent. But that's costly. There's a price to be paid. We need to acknowledge that. Verse 61 raises an even more complicated issue for us still another said I will follow you Lord but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family Uh, it seems like a pretty reasonable request look what Jesus says no one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the service of the kingdom of God I understand the thing about ploughing particularly if you're uh, doing it physically with, without a machine, is that you have to keep your eye on the point ahead. You have to remain focused if you're going to go straight. If you look back, what happens? The plough moves and, and it becomes... The, you're not ploughing correctly. You get zigzag lines instead of being focused. 
And I think what Jesus is saying, he's not asking us to ignore our families, but he is saying, and this is the challenging thing, you've got to put me first above everything else. Above your family. Above everything else. Now, we've already actually seen Jesus do this. Earlier on in Luke, do you remember the incident where the man was lowered down and people were gathered and Jesus healed him and gave him forgiveness of sins and uh, there was a whole crowd around and people said, oh, oh, your brothers and your mother, etc., outside. Surely you want to see them. And, and Jesus actually says to them, well, actually, the people here are my mothers and brothers those who put the word of God into practice are the ones who are my mother and brothers and sisters. Jesus says, the cost of following me will mean you put me first above every other relationship, above every other thing. Whew, that's a big call, isn't it? And yet Jesus actually understands that call, doesn't he? He understands the cost involved. We read, as we read this passage this evening, these words, the Son of Man must suffer and bring many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And then he says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Forever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me, for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Oh, Jesus understands this only too well. He knows the path of the disciple. He knows what he's asking us to do in following him. I don't know about you, but sometimes I find this hard to conceive of in terms of real life. How does this actually fill out? Well, I said tonight I'd share some personal things with you, and one of the things I want to talk about is my mum. If you've been here for a while, I talk about her every now and then. But she is an example to me of what it means to pay this cost, to pay this price, to determine to do these things to follow Jesus. My mum grew up in a home where, um, sadly, uh, four of her brothers and sisters died, which left her as the only child. Probably due to that, her father became an alcoholic and her mother died when she was about 14 or 15. By the age of 16, she'd run away from home. Uh, She managed to find her way to do nursing Um, Her aunties along the way had chucked out everything that she ever owned. Uh, They were trying to care for her, but, you know, things weren't going right. While she went to uh, nursing training, she was rooming with a woman that she really didn't want to room with. Uh, It was a Christian woman. And that Christian woman used to get down by her bed every night and pray for her. (laughs) And in time, mum became a Christian. And over time, as she got to know Jesus and got to love him, she decided that she wanted to go to Sydney Missionary Bible College, SMBC. So you see her name up on the board there. She was a senior student at some stage. 
And she went there and studied, and while she was there, she got convicted to go overseas. She's now in her late 20s, and she decides to travel to Sarawak, Malaysia. Uh, This is the 50s, okay, early 50s. Single woman traveling to Sarawak, Malaysia. And she did nursing there, but she didn't do nursing in kind of the cities. She did nursing in the most remote tribal areas you can think of. Learning tribal languages, learning how to minister to people in the most terrible circumstances often. Why did she do that? Because she loved Jesus. But there's a bit of the story I haven't told you. At one stage in her nursing training, her aunties obviously saw that she'd got going and things were starting to work out okay. And so they said to her, look, uh, we own a private hospital. Uh, We'd like you to, to run and own that private hospital. It's yours. Can you imagine that? Basically an orphan, nothing really to think of. A life ahead of her offered a private hospital. She said, why would I want to do that? God's called me to the mission field. That's where I'm going. Now, her aunties were absolutely furious with her. You understand why? That offered her everything. All the material wealth you could possibly want. She risked the relationships with them because she decided to go to the mission field. Well, she's on the mission field for a while and eventually she met my dad in her late 30s. They got married and had kids. But somewhere in that process, some things went wrong. My little sister, who was older than me, um, was misdiagnosed in Australia. They went out to Malaysia. They got out there and then realised that she had a tumour, a brain tumour. And so, by the grace of God, someone flew them back Uh, Little Linda was operated on. Uh, She was about 18 months. Unfortunately, she never awoke from her operation. She was in a a coma for the next six months. And she died. Now, at that particular point, my parents could have gone, that's it, we're done. We're out of here. We've been on the mission field. We've served for a number of years. We've served for 10 years already. let's, Let's get out of here. But they wanted to follow Jesus. And so they went back and to kind of just make things a little bit more difficult, um, mum, loved fam- mum loves families. At the time, there was little ed- education for m- myself and my brother. And so by, the a- by second class, we were off living with other families and in boarding schools for our education's sake. Our mum hated the policy. She spoke against it many times, wrote letters to say, I don't like this, I hate this. But can you imagine that, having lost your daughter and then effectively losing your two sons just so that you can have the opportunity to tell people about Jesus? Now, can I say mission policies are far better than that now and there's other ways people work things out, but by the grace of God... She wanted to serve Jesus. When we finally came back to Australia, I was about 15. Uh, The mission we belonged to was called a faith mission. 
Uh, What that meant in those days is you trusted God to provide for every need, but you never told anybody what your need was. Can you imagine that? That's crazy. Most missions don't do that these days. We got home, we had nothing. Like they had no savings. There was no plan. My dad was exhausted from 25 years of being on the mission field. He was offered to be a pastor. He said, I can't do it. So he's cleaning out gutters. Um, He tried to sell Amway. Do you know that product? But he's a terrible salesman. He kept giving it all away. Fortunately, my mum got some nursing and she did some work in Erskineville as a baby health sister and saw out her days as a nurse. But God actually stepped in. One of those aunties who had been so angry with my mother died and in the will left us a house. And so we had somewhere to live. As the years have gone by, they were actually given another house. (laughs) Um, They looked after an older woman who said, look, you can have my house. So you might think that I'm in for a good time. I've got a good inheritance coming my way, you know, when they eventually uh, die. Unfortunately, we're just uh, getting them into a nursing home at the moment and we've discovered they've virtually got nothing because they don't believe in holding on to material things. (sighs) They've actually just given their money away to missions, to people in need. They just keep doing it. Now, I tell you what, that's, whoa, that's, that's a lot, isn't it? That's a cost. That's a high price to pay for following Jesus. I don't know whether it leaves you feeling guilty and like, oh, I don't know whether I could ever do that. Well, you ought to try being her son. Like, wow, the expectations are like, how can I ever meet that? And I want to suggest to you there's actually some dangers here and I've seen them unfold in lots of different ways. People can make huge sacrifices and desire to serve Jesus but actually be motivated by the wrong things. And we're all tempted by this, but some wow, sometimes it's just a train wreck. You know that desire to be the hero of your own story. Look, look at the price I've paid to make this happen. Look how much I've been willing to give up. Wow. Or that, you know, that one about approval. Look at me. Well, no, don't look at me. I'm really humble. But look at all I've given up. I'm just, you know, it'd be nice to have some praise this way. That'd be nice. Do you feel it in your own heart? Do this struggle, this temptation to kind of actually be prepared to sacrifice things but for kind of all the wrong reasons? To somehow get your self-identity to somehow... Well, actually, sometimes it actually comes from a thankfulness to God. Strangely, we kind of want to pay God back. It's really weird. So there's a dilemma here, isn't there? The standard is high. We're called to something and, and yet it seems quite... Challenging, and that's why I want to think about this, this third thing as we think about uh, the call to be active tonight. 
the commitment to being active. And, and here I want to refer actually to Jesus. Jesus' commitment to us being active. Did you notice that when Jesus sent his disciples, they were his already? He didn't send them so that they would somehow gain approval with him. They were already his. Did you notice how bad they were at it? I mean, we have this situation. You see there in uh, verse 46, there's an argument about who's the greatest. And they're talking about someone throwing out demons who shouldn't be. And then there's another time where they talk about the Samaritan village and want to bring destruction upon the Samaritan village. There's all kinds of things taking place and the disciples are particularly bad at it. But Jesus says, I've called you. I've sent you. I know all this about you. I am the Christ. I'm the Messiah come to rescue you in this world. And I am the one who centers you. I know this. And so I want to reflect on those verses about the cost of discipleship that we've heard read already, but kind of change them a bit. Because we could not deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow Jesus. Jesus has done it for us. Even to death on the cross. Because you and I wanted to save our lives but in the process have lost them. Jesus lost his life in order that ours could be saved. Because we wanted to gain the whole world and forfeit our very selves, Jesus forfeited his very self and has given us much more than this world. He's given us himself and the whole of eternity. See, that's Jesus' commitment to us. That's Jesus' commitment to us in loving us and reaching out to us and calling us to be active. And then he says, see at the beginning of chapter 9, he sends them out in his spirit, with his spirit. And that's what he does in Acts chapter 1 as well. He sends them out with his spirit. He sends them out empowered with his love to an act in ways to be active. Because the standard is too high. We can't do it. We need to be in Christ, empowered by his spirit, to be those people who live out what he's called us to do in word and deed. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.